Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Glad to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I think uh, many of you listen to the show regularly know that on the day before a show, I put together a list of topics I think we ought to be talking about that I send out to the people who are going to be on the show the next day. And yesterday, as I was putting that list together, I thought, gee, are we, is there enough to talk about to fill an hour. Well, guess what? There is more than enough because we've had some really fascinating developments in political news in the last 24 hours. So we're going to get to those stories after I introduce the panel. It's Wednesday, which means that my uh, partner from the AJC is Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, how are you today? I'm great, but we thought the same thing even with our podcast yesterday as we were taping it. Uh, Politically Georgia podcast, we had to redo the start because right after we taped it, I got a text saying that the debate was actually confirmed. So we had to kind of throw everything out the window. Patricia, poor Patricia Murphy had to scrap her column, which was on why the two candidates should actually debate. And we had to go start from scratch. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the way political news is happening uh, these days. Uh, We're going to get to the Senate debate in just a moment. Uh, Maya King politics reporter for the New York Times, based in Atlanta, is back with us. Maya, I I mentioned to you before the show, it's really been a pleasure to have you join us uh, to hear your analysis of this really remarkable election cycle. Thanks for being here, Maya. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. This has been so much fun and certainly uh, no shortage of things to write about down here right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, And Rick Dent, uh, who has really been the one person, I think, that we turn to and that many people turn to uh, to help us understand spending and content of the political ads that um, are uh, uh, inundating uh, the airwaves has been with us on a number of occasions. Rick does political consulting work. He's the vice president of Matrix Communications. Um uh, and Rick, you know, as I said, we're really glad to have you. We got a lot to talk about in terms of ads on the show today, too. I look forward to it, but I want to know why am I always on with Blue Steam? I mean, everybody knows <laughs> that Patricia Murphy is the brains of that outfit. <laughs> I agree as well. I, you always put out I have, with my arch rival. I I have to say, and then I want to get past this because we have important things to talk about, that one of the hallmarks of this show for the um, eight years we've been on the air is respectful conversation among even people who disagree. So, Rick, get over it. All right. (laughs) Greg Bluestein, for months, the the, uh, Warnock campaign has been goading Herschel Walker saying, why won't you debate? They've spent money on ads uh, highlighting the fact that Walker has uh, uh, not committed over a period of time to debating. We know he never debated uh, any of his opponents in the uh, GOP primary for uh, the Senate nomination. Um, 
And he did not respond to the Warnock campaign's initial uh, 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 acceptance of three debates, Atlanta, Macon, and Savannah. But now we do have a debate October 14th in Savannah. So a couple questions to start with, Greg. Why do you imagine this debate is finally on? Is it the Warnock people deciding they've got to have at least one debate if they're not going to have three? Is it Walker feeling if he doesn't debate, it's going to hurt his chances? What's happening here? Yeah, I think it's more of the former, where Senator Warnock just decided that one debate is better than none at all. Um, This has been a very tedious subplot of, of this entire election drama. We've had Herschel Walker for months saying he'd debate Senator Warnock any place, any time. But then when it came down to brass tacks, um, he didn't accept any of Senator Warnock's three debate proposals, came up with the fourth one. Then we had this sort of back and forth going on for a long time. But look, you know, debate organizers, they need some time to put these things together. So, um, you know, the rubber was meeting the road right now, and we were, we were getting to that, uh, that window of time. It's becoming really important. So uh, I'm just glad as a Georgia, not just a reporter, but as a voter, that we'll have a chance to see these two candidates sharing the same stage, able to interchange, interact, and uh, exchange questions with, with each other and hear from some great debate moderators. Um, Maya, unless things have changed, and I've seen no evidence that they have, it, this debate will be uh, televised by WSAV, uh, the TV station in Savannah. Um, and unless things have changed, there's going to be a, an audience of up to 500 people who will watch the debate live in the studio, um, that can have an impact on how a debate unfolds. And at one point, uh, the Warnock people insisted that they would do this debate uh, if if WSAV did not follow a policy by their uh, ownership, which requires them to give out the topics, not the questions, but the topics, in advance. How do these dynamics, do you think, affect how this debate might unfold? Well, I think this last point um, of the campaign sort of finally letting its guard down and going ahead and committing to this debate portrays a little bit of confidence on the part of the Warnock campaign. I think folks in Warnock's circle understand, one, his incredible oratory skills, and two, his ability and his grasp on, on policy issues. I think that's where they're betting he can really hit Walker, who is likely to make more of an argument around uh, Biden's lower approval ratings, the, the voting record that Warnock has in tandem with the president, um, and maybe even some, some you know, more personal issues as it relates to, to Warnock's background and some stories that have come out last cycle that Warnock now, or excuse me, that Walker has now chosen uh, to elevate, sort of trying to paint Warnock as more of a, a controversial figure. But, um, you know, I, I agree with Greg. This is a good opportunity for us to just see these two candidates spar. I think it's important and a healthy thing to happen. Um, but I also do believe that, you know, this is, this is a show on the, Warnock, on the part of the Warnock camp of confidence in their candidate um, and, and sort of making the difference between these two candidates very clear. Rick, um, before I ask a few more questions, let me get your general thoughts on this debate finally moving forward. See, I, I may have a minority opinion here, but I always thought Herschel Walker could win this race without debate. I really did believe that. And there is going to be some risk for him. The big downside for him is if he says something that can be used in an ad against him, that's the big downside for him. But the upside is 
that the expectations for him may be so low that he can't do anything but exceed those expectations. And the other thing about debates is they're not really debates. They're usually so strict. The, the answer time is so small and so short. If you just stay on message, you can be pretty safe out there. So, you know, again, I think he could have gotten away without, with not doing it, uh, but there's probably more upside than downside for Herschel Walker. Um, Greg, I think Rick makes a really important point. Um, there have been so many stories written, talked about on TV, about the gaffes that Herschel Walker makes, uh, concerns about whether as a football star and a businessman who's had problems with his business that he may not be prepared f- to be a senator, but certainly that will have problems in a debate. The expectations are awfully low, um, and I don't see how Walker, unless, as Rick says, he makes some terrible gaffe, uh, escapes this debate without coming off fairly well. Yeah, and we wrote in the jolt this morning that that's a problem for Senator Warnock. The, the expectations for Herschel Walker are low because of the blunders he's made, the gaffes, the lies, the misstatements, the exaggerations, all that. So if he comes off as just kind of even mediocre, it could be seen as a win for his supporters. And, and, and then again, of course, remember, so many people will not be watching uh, live on TV. They'll be just seeing the digestible sound, uh, you know, sound bites and video clips that the campaigns and their allies will be tweeting. So if he lands just a few of those, it could be a, a, a big moment for him as well. Um, I want to talk about the studio audience, Rick. And if you don't mind, I want to go way, way back in time to 1990 when uh, there was a runoff debate. Uh, there was a debate between uh, uh, Andy Young and uh, I think Zell, and Zell Miller um, and uh, who, who were running uh, for governor at the time. And... Um, well, I'm not sure it was a runoff for governor, so let me let me take that back. There was a debate between Andy Young and Zell Miller at one point. There was a studio audience at GPB, of all places. Andy Young had the largest share of the studio audience, and every time he made a comment, they cheered him wildly. And um, later, GPB got a lot of criticism because it appeared that the audience was stacked against uh, uh, Zell, and, um, and it wasn't. But it did change the whole dynamic of that debate. It, it does. And as a campaign manager or consultant, you have got to lay the law down before you walk in there. That number one, it's equally divided. And number two, there better be crowd control or we're leaving. I've been in too many situations where the crowds have interfered with debate, have hurt my candidate. And, and had to sit through fake promises that something would be done about it, uh, you've got you to nail that down up front or you can have a serious problem. There was that, so we're going to watch how that unfolds uh, and see how this debate turns out. And, of course, we'll be talking about it on the show uh, even before the debate uh, happens. But, again, it's going to take place on October 14th. Uh, broadcast out of the studios of WSAV in Savannah. And that may be the only debate that we'll see between these two uh, candidates. Um, All right, let's move on uh, and talk about an announcement that Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina made uh, just yesterday. 
uh, that I think caught a lot of Republican candidates in this cycle off guard um, and caused some some uh, uh, real trauma within Republican ranks. Senator Graham uh, said that he will propose, if Republicans take control of Congress, a national abortion law that will uh, limit abortions to, I think, the first uh, maybe 14, 15 weeks, something uh, like that. Um, and this has not gone over well within the ranks of many Republicans, Maya. No, I think Republicans are sort of dancing around this issue of abortion, if not all out avoiding it in many races that are that are especially close. Um, and here comes Lindsey Graham yesterday kind of saying, no, this is a full embrace now um, of these abortion bans or these restrictive laws and putting his colleagues in a really tough position. But I think a couple of things in terms of the Republican response to this bill or this proposal um, are, are really telling. One, you heard Leader Mitch McConnell kind of throw cold water on it, saying you'll have to ask Senator Graham about this. And that was certainly not an endorsement. <laughs> um, and a few of his Republican colleagues even, you know, talking to reporters and kind of saying, I don't know why he would do this right now, making it really difficult now for Republicans to answer to this in some battleground states. And, I mean, giving Democrats a, a wonderful opening um, to say, look, yes, this is the party that wants to pass this legislation. Hopefully we, they can push that message and and try to get, you know, their 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 or excuse me, their base motivated. Um, but it, it certainly was interesting timing, I think, on the part of Senator Graham to kind of make this all out embrace and bet that that would be something smart to do this close to an election. One other thing, though, that I'll point out here is that um, one person who who did come out and say that he would support this bill was Herschel Walker in an interview with Politico mm -hmm. yesterday, already sending a, um, a statement to Politico that said, yes, I think this is a great move and I endorse it. Um, and I think that's interesting if that catches fire at all with voters here in Georgia. Um, Greg, uh, uh, Maya has already mentioned Mitch McConnell. Let's listen to uh, what Mitch McConnell himself said uh, after uh, hearing about uh, uh, this uh, uh, bill that uh, Graham is proposing. Lindsey Graham has this 15-week abortion ban. If you take up, take the Senate, will you put this on the floor of the Senate for a vote, or will you commit to leaving this issue entirely to the states? Well, with regard to his bill, you'll have to ask him about it. In terms of scheduling, I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. Greg? Well, yeah, that is definitely not an endorsement for the Senate Minority Leader whatsoever. But it does cause all sorts of complications here in Georgia, as Maya mentioned. But Governor Kemp does not want to be talking about abortion. He'll answer questions about it, but he wants to be talking about high inflation, uh, the, the rising prices of household goods, the economy writ large, and not anti-abortion. But guess what's going to happen today when he goes to an event up in northeast Georgia? Um, he'll get questions about this federal uh, abortion proposal. And as Maya mentioned, Herschel Walker um, sent out a statement saying, uh, in essence, I'm quoting here, uh, I believe the issue should be decided at the state level, but I would support this policy. So that's where he stands, um, which is a departure from where some other Senate Republicans around the nation who also want to keep this at state level. He's saying kind of both. He thinks it should be a state issue, but he would support a federal ban or restrictions on abortion. Um, Rick, and of course, uh, even if a federal law were put into effect, states will have the opportunity to continue uh, with their own 
versions of their abortion uh, uh, restrictions. And, and so in a lot of ways, uh, this is more a statement of intent than, or, or a, philo- a philosophical statement than it is something that will really have an impact, uh, even if it were to pass. You know, again, I think we're all scratching our, our heads about this. It's such an odd strategy. It looks like maybe Lindsey Graham thought, okay, we need to moderate a little bit and, 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 and move to the middle a little bit and help folks out. But what he has done, not only in Georgia, but throughout the nation, he has allowed now every Democrat running for Congress to turn to their Republican opponent and say, where do you stand, yes or no? Let's hear it. And put every single opponent into a corner. So, uh, again, it's pretty much a a head-scratcher for for most of us. Now, you know what? It could be that Lindsey Graham sincerely believes that abortion is hurting Republicans, and it just may be. And he thinks this could help. But I don't know. Um, Maya, the reason I say in the long run, even if this were not, even if this were to pass somehow magically, it's a 15-week ban. And even states that allow abortion um, are usually limited to maybe the uh, end of the first uh, trimester. I mean, there's no state that really is allowing for abortions to continue all the way through a woman's pregnancy. Right, right. And and um, Graham has already mistakenly called this, this bill a late-term abortion bill, defining 15 weeks as late-term, and that's really not the case and still would effectively ban abortion in a number of states. And there's a clause in that, in the language of the bill, that mentions leaving um, policies at the state level in place already. So if, if in a place like right. Georgia, perhaps, that has a six-week ban already, this 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 bill, if it, if it did pass, I wouldn't change anything here. So, um, you know, yeah, definitely looking in the long run. Honestly, all I see right now, though, or in all I could envision are one 30 second Democratic ad clips that just have yeah. that talking point from him. If we take the House and the Senate, this bill passes. If we don't, we don't pass this bill. I think that's enough. for All voters. right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you at the end there. All right, let's do this. Why don't we get the first break of the show out of the way? We'll come back uh, with a lot more on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Just a couple of quick notes before we get back to the panel. Number one, yeah, I, I refreshed my memory and, and looked at Google <laughs> to make sure I was right. It was a 1990 uh, runoff for Democratic nomination for governor between Andy Young uh, and Zell Miller. Zell Miller won it overwhelmingly, but it was in that uh, debate that I mentioned that a studio audience uh, had a major impact on the dynamics of how that debate uh, played out. I just wanted to make sure I... Uh, 
got that right in my head and could communicate it to you correctly. Another quick note, uh, it's Political Rewind Newsletter uh, Day. Later this afternoon, we'll be delivering our newsletter to people who are subscribers. You can join us by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. In um, my uh, piece for the top of the newsletter today, I talk about what Stephen Sondheim and St. Paul tell us about the toxic politics of today and why we ought to change course as quickly as possible. That's our newsletter that'll come out later today. Maya King from the New York Times, Rick Dent, Matrix Communications, and Greg Bluestein are with us uh, for the show today. Maya, you wrote a piece for the New York Times, it appeared last week now, that got an awful lot of buzz. You wrote about concerns among some Democrats that the Abrams campaign right now seems to be underperforming. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your reporting, what you found, and uh, um, uh, just update us on what's happening in that race. Sure. Uh, well, my colleague, Reed Epstein, and I have been talking to a number of folks in and around Georgia, people who were plugged into to politics down here. And, you know, everyone sort of thinks about the campaigns as pre and post Labor Day. And so um, when it came time for us to figure out, you know, what the what the vibe was um, among Georgia Democrats post Labor Day, we just noticed a lot of concern. I think what a lot of people were thinking about sort of in the Georgia political world was if you were to compare the level of energy among Democrats' voter base, the level of enthusiasm among um, community leaders and county elected officials and the folks who should really be out mobilizing people in the same way that we saw for Abrams in 2018. They feel like that level is sort of falling short um, in 2022. A couple of the things that um, that we pointed out in the story were Abrams' um, lagging performance right now with Black voters, specifically Black men, where she'll need to hover in the low 90s right? with that voting block. She's sort of in the mid to low 80s. Um, and it's done a lot of programming to try to make up that lag. And a number of folks just say that, you know, they feel like at this stage, um, her chances of defeating Brian Kemp, a relatively popular incumbent with now four years of a legislative record behind him, um, and quite a bit of money and political infrastructure to boot at a really tough moment for Democrats nationwide. All of these things have just made it extremely difficult now for, for Democrats in Georgia to have a, a bright and sunny outlook around the governor's race um, for what, in terms of you know, what's going to happen heading into November. Not quite the same, though, feeling that they have um, for Senator Warnock's chances, where they feel like, one, the caliber um, of, of his opponent, feeling like Herschel Walker, is an easier opponent to go after or to win against is, is one you know, opinion that we heard from quite a bit of Democrats. And two, just that he has made up some of that ground uh, with black voters and black men. And so has a few of the has a few less uh, uh, constituency issues um, relative to to leader Abrams. Um, Greg, obviously, you've been following this race very closely, too. Um, and let me just give you a couple of quotes from uh, that Maya's article that won't be unfamiliar to you. Uh, uh, Democratic State Rep Eric Allen said, quote, right now people are concerned there's a lot of energy around the Warnock campaign. I'm not sure if the same energy that we had four years ago is around the Abrams campaign um, yet. But also Maya talked to uh, Stacey Abrams, 
who said, I imagine an electorate that is possible, not the electorate as if the election was held today. Greg? Yeah, look, I mean, it's hard to quantify these issues because she's raised more money, um, that she has more social media followers, all those little things that we kind of look at. But we know that her campaign has treated itself as the underdog from the get-go. Last year around this time, polls were closer. Uh, this is a very different situation. And add to that the fact that she is not the new kid on the block anymore, right? She's not getting the glowing coverage she got from a lot of national media that she did four years ago. Um, she's not the, you know, leading the, the national news in a sense that she was four years ago. Um, in, in many respects, you could say Senator Warnock might be even kind of overshadowing her, or at least, or at least getting more of more attention than even Stacey Abrams is, um, because she's, she's been out there. And then here in Georgia, Really, for the last almost a decade, Republicans have been attacking her. Um, you know, if you're running for dog catcher in, you know, in, in Troop County, you were running against Stacey Abrams back in 2016. So she's also uh, been, been, been hurt by that, been damaged by those perennial attacks on her. But, you know, we've always expected this race in, to be very close. Uh, the polls have shown her back five, six points. Um, her her bid here, her strategy here is relying on the electorate to be bigger than the polls are showing. More women showing up, and certainly as Maya meant, um, she's at 80% in the polls among African-American voters. That sounds like a lot. She needs to be at 90%. She's treating black voters the same way she would treat white college-educated women from the suburbs, which is as persuadable. That's what her campaign says. So. Um, that, that tells you a lot about where their strategy is and where they feel like they can they can pick up some ground between her and Brian Kemp. Rick, jump in. Well, there, there are really three things that have to happen for a Democrat to win. We've already discussed you've got to get about 90 to 95 percent of the African-American vote. Second, there's this idea of it's called the 30-30 rule. That is, you need African-Americans to make up at least 30% of the vote, okay? You've got to get 30, not 28, not 29. And if you're lucky, you get Obama 31, 32. And you've got to get 30% of the white vote as well. And she's had uh, troubles with that number as well. So those are the three things. Now, in fairness to the Abrams side, Understand now, for about a decade, they have been raising money, lots of money, in terms of building an apparatus, a machine, turnout, and uh, getting new people on the rolls. So the question in November will be, can she turn that out? And we won't know until Election Day, but she certainly has been working on that for a very long time. Um. Maya, uh, were there any indications in the reporting you did, the people you talked to, that that gender played plays a role in how women, uh, how people are viewing Stacey Abrams? The fact that she's a female uh, candidate, whereas of course Warnock is he's an African American man, but he is a male. To what extent did you hear anything that told you that sexism is a part of all this? We certainly heard some some um, discussion of that from sources, people who who pointed out, look, you know, there the, there's a there's a part part of the reason why Warnock has more built in black male support is because black men see him as a member of their demographic. 
But I'll also note, you know, part of this, too, that I think has to be said is you're, you're talking about a black woman running in the South for an office that has never been occupied by a black woman before and only for black Americans ever in history. So, you know, this is something that I think voters have had in Georgia. They've had four years to consider and get really excited about. But it's still something that, you know, sources have shared with us that people are still trying to wrap their mind around is can they envision a black woman in executive office statewide? And I think that's part of this, too, where it's not necessarily a discomfort, but it's something new uh, to the electorate. Greg, um, to what extent do you think you're hearing that um, abortion uh, could be an issue that will propel more voters to uh, Abrams' side and the right voters to her side? In other words, the question becoming, if she needs more black men uh, to try to win this race, abortion may not be the issue that moves them in her direction, right? Sure. But, you know, the most reliable block of voters, period, for Democrats are black women um, here in Georgia. And so that, that you know, th- th- this sounds strange, but um, the Lindsey Graham's proposal is probably music to Stacey Abrams' ears in that sense, that it, that it can help focus more attention on this issue, force Governor Brian Kemp to talk about it, right, in a way that he doesn't necessarily want to, um, and bring credence to her her argument that, you know, Republicans want to go even further. Um, she always makes the, the case that Governor Kemp himself back in 2018 personally endorsed a much stricter abortion ban than what he signed into law a year later. And so, again, this goes back to her belief, um, and not just her belief, but other leading Democrats believe that the polls aren't catching up to the, the magnitude of this abortion issue and that a significant number economy might still be the number one issue, but a significant number of voters will make abortion their determining factor in November. Rick, you know, uh, you know, I have been pushing Democrats to pounce on this issue from the, from the day that Supreme court decision was handed down. The beauty of the abortion issue is is actually a two-four. It's a two-four issue. Number one, it excites the Democratic base, and she needs that. But number two, it also has an appeal to that key swing demographic that we talk about all the time, suburban, white, college-educated women. They have been deciding uh, elections here in the last few years, and again, abortion just might be enough to pull them over into the Democratic side. Rick, we've said on the show before that you do you've, in your consulting work. You've sometimes represented Republicans and other times Democratic candidates. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So Alabama, tell us about a woman uh, who is now the likely winner of the uh, U.S. Senate race in Alabama. Hmm. She came from the business community. She represented an organization which is really the uh, Chamber of Commerce of Alabama, but in a different sort of way. She ran against Mo Brooks, who was part of January 6th, but through hard work, uh, a great deal of money, uh, handling the Donald Trump issue, uh, in a perfect way, he eventually endorsed her. Um, she was able to uh, pull out um, in a tough three-way match and win in Alabama. 
uh, and she's 40 years old and uh, has the potential of being a superstar for the Republican Party. Um, I just think it's interesting that if there are people who are resisting Stacey Abrams on the basis of gender, uh, that's not happening in Alabama. But it's also the difference between a Democratic um, uh, electorate and a, well, I don't even know if that's a fair thing to say, Rick. What's the difference? You know, I think the key in Georgia is not necessarily sex, it's incumbency. That's the difference in the two races in Georgia, the Senate and the governor's race. You have two incumbents, and there is a certain amount of privilege that comes with being an incumbent and an advantage. And I think maybe incumbency has more to do with the different take on those two races than um, uh, one being a female, one being a male. But I may be wrong. Maya, just to put a finishing uh, a touch on this part of the conversation, um, and you've already really pointed it out. I mean, Stacey Abrams uh, and, and Brian Kemp competed for an open seat in uh, 2018. Uh, Kemp uh, now is the incumbent. I think many people would suggest he's run a really strong campaign um, and uh, that there are people who now believe the state's in pretty good shape. Some of the reason he's done well and and uh, been able to uh, uh, say that he's doing a good job as governor is because of the massive amounts of federal money that he's able to dole out from COVID relief funds. Um, but it is trickier for a challenger against an incumbent whose uh, approval numbers have been pretty strong, yes? Absolutely. I mean, for Abrams, who has largely framed her campaign message around Brian Kemp's last four years, a lot of Kemp supporters are totally fine with that and have pushed back to say, actually, the argument that you're making that all of these things were detrimental to Georgia, you can look at our economy, you know, you can look at sort of the, the success of the state and, and see otherwise. And I think also one thing that, that is big here is that in 2018, Abrams had this, all this energy behind this huge, huge issue of voting rights and access to the ballot. That has just been completely uh, wiped out of the of the conversation by abortion, by uh, Medicaid expansion, something that she's talked widely about by a number of statewide issues. And of course, the passage of SB 202, which has uh, taken away some points of access to the ballot as well. That grassroots energy around that issue just doesn't exist anymore. In 2018, where she was sort of the voting rights candidate, um, Abrams has had to branch out to a number of other uh, topics. Um, Greg, before we get to a break, uh, it would be a terrible mistake to suggest that just because the polls right now, this moment in time, show uh, Kemp with a lead of several points or more over Abrams, despite the fact there are concerns that Maya has reported on, that you've reported on, about whether Stacey is able to uh, capture the voters she needs. It'd be a terrible mistake to believe that this race is over with. This couldn't is going to go down to the wire in a state that is almost 50-50 Republican and Democrat. Yeah, I was saying all the time, you never count Stacey Abrams out. And guess what? The Republicans say that as well. You never count Stacey Abrams out. I talk to uh, all four campaigns all the time and people around them every single day. And they're all nervous right now. There are folks who are thinking that Governor Kemp isn't doing enough. There's folks thinking that Herschel Walker isn't doing enough, that Senator Warnock isn't doing enough, that Stacey Abrams certainly is, you know, that there's fears that she's not doing enough. Um, right now, it's a very edgy mentality because the polls show 
basically effectively a deadlock in the Senate race. And it's still a close race in the governor's race. And again, with all these uh, questions about how big the electorate will be and how Dobbs' decision affects Georgia voters, uh, the the polls could be turned on their heads, you know, in a matter of weeks. So we'll we'll see how that turns out. And the AJC has a new poll coming out, hopefully next week. All right. We'll look forward to that. Uh, By the way, uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager, Lauren Grow Wargo, is going to join us for Political Rewind tomorrow. We're going to do a conversation with her about how she hopes the race will unfold, the issues they're uh, dealing with right now uh, on tomorrow's show. And then next week, uh, the Kemp campaign uh, will have a representative uh, join us for Political Rewind, and we'll hear where they're headed in the final weeks of this election cycle. Let's take a break right now. More when we come back on Political Rewind. Rick Dent, you really are the expert in Georgia on political ad spending and the content of political ads in this cycle. Um, The amounts of money are staggering. So much money is going into commercials, Rick, that we should point out that Channel 2 has uh, suspended their late afternoon talk show, Tamron Hall, uh, so they can, in fact, uh, have more what we call inventory, availability of political ads to be uh, run, right? <laughs> Are you there, Rick? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought that was for Greg. Yeah, yeah. you know, they've done that before. Uh, but who can blame them? I mean, it's, it's a gold rush. The thing that I wonder about with the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent right now, if you look at the polling averages in both races since May, they basically have not moved. All, all of this money, all of this advertising, and, you know, uh, people criticize, well, they're just doing TV. I looked it up. Warnock has spent $11 million on digital. The Abrams folks side have spent about $4 million. So they are communicating with voters digitally as well. But when you look at the amounts of money and the fact that this, these races are the way they are and they're not moving, you have to wonder, number one, are voters paying attention? And number two, are the ads effective in the least? Yeah, Greg, I think that's a great point. So Rick uh, gave us some figures to look at uh, for spending. In the U.S. Senate race, he tells us Democrats uh, have spent a total of $121.3 million compared to the Republicans' $98.6 million. And that's all spending, whether it's from PACs or the campaigns themselves. And yet, as Rick points out, that race is essentially deadlocked. Yeah, and again, you know, it goes to the heart of the question, which is, it's you know, strategists still say that TV spending makes the biggest difference, but, but really, in a sense, it's also shoveling money down a hole. <laughs> but look, we saw in 2020 where um, there was so much money to spend, almost a billion dollars in total on, on all these races in Georgia, that money was being spent in neighboring state TV markets, you know, just to capture a slim, slim number of Georgia voters who might live on the border of Tennessee or the border of Alabama or the border of Florida. And the TV stations you know, in Metro Atlanta and elsewhere, just racked up big bucks. 
Um, but, you know, the campaigns themselves, they're looking for money that can also help build up long-term apparatus that can help them pass this election cycle. And we have seen some evidence of at least some spending going towards helping grassroots organizations, um, you know, build their apparatus and stay intact through 2024, 2026, when there are other big races on the ballot. Um, Maya, uh, in the governor's race, Rick tells us that Democrats have spent a total of 43-plus million compared to 30-plus million uh, for Republicans. Uh, so again, a big advantage for Democrats. But I turn to you on this because I want to pick up on the subject we just talked about, which is how abortion could play a role in this campaign. Why don't we listen to a spot that the Abrams campaign has played, one of a number of spots in which they highlight uh, Brian Kemp's record on abortion and an issue which we believe they think they'll continue to spend on because they think it's an animating force. Let's listen. It's an attack on the women of Georgia. Brian Kemp made abortion a crime before, before many, many women, women even know, know they are pregnant. pregnant. And he supports a total ban. Even if I'm right. A victim of incest. Forced pregnancy. Criminalized women. women with jail time. Outlaw some birth control. Under Kemp, I could be investigated and imprisoned for a miscarriage. For a miscarriage. The only way to stop this attack on the women of Georgia is to stop Brian Kemp. And Maya, that's an important final line. It says, you'd better get out and vote if you want to preserve your right to choice. Yeah, there's a couple of things that, that pop out to me. One, um, I, I will say my parents live in Tallahassee, Florida, on the Florida-Georgia line. And whenever I go home, I've seen and heard this ad a couple of times um, <laughs> to that point of sort of those, those hard-to-reach voters that are kind of on the, on the line there. Um, but also, I think the campaign realizes that, you know, outside of the metro Atlanta area, there are, are a lot of voters who actually might not be familiar with the parameters of how their lives could change under this new abortion law. And Abrams' campaign, it's no secret, has millions and millions of dollars to pour into messaging and into micro-targeting. And so listening to that ad tells me that the people that they're trying to reach there might very well be the voters in Georgia who are like, oh my gosh, wait, that's, that's what could happen? Um, of course, it's a political ad, so everything is a little bit embellished. But of course, the point is driven home, um, certainly, certainly with that ad and, and the visuals there are also rather striking. I saw that as not just the persuasion, but, but, but also information there. Yeah. A lot of it is women talking directly into camera, tight shots of women's faces so that we see them as real human beings, Greg. Yeah. And it's an ad you don't forget. Right. And that's the challenge right now because we're seeing back to back or back to back to back ads and on, on, on the airwaves here and hearing them uh, on the radio. Um, you know, it's a challenge for ad smiths to break through. And that's one of those ads that really does a, a, a good job at breaking through. It's an ad you remember. It's an ad you say, did they just say that? You know, did I just hear that right? Holy. Um, and that's what Abrams is, is looking. You know, this might be an ad you might see even in another campaign, even closer to Election Day. But in this case, um, she's making these, these sharp, sharper arguments now in September rather than waiting till October to do it. Um, Rick, of course, we know that uh, while w that what Republicans want to do, especially in the governor's race, is focus on uh, who would be the more competent leader in the state, how they'd handle major issues in the state, um, how inflation has affected um, uh, everyday lives of Georgians. Uh, let's just listen to 
an, an ad for Stacey Abrams that I mean, I'm for Brian Kemp that goes after Abrams on uh, other issues entirely. My plan, my vision is different. Georgia would be different with Abrams. She pushed more COVID lockdowns, wanted businesses closed and kids locked out of schools. Abrams' crime plan? Eliminate cash bail. The same failed liberal scheme causing crime to surge in other states. She wants big new spending, too. Abrams even backs Washington's massive new tax hikes. More taxes and spending. Let criminals out of jail. That's Stacey Abrams' extreme plan for Georgia. Rick, your thoughts? It's interesting. If, if you look at the language on both sides, they use the word extreme. So the Democrats are making the argument that if Brian Kemp continues as governor, he's going to have these extreme abortion laws. They've talked about in the past the extreme gun laws. And the response from the Republicans is exactly as you just heard. She's too liberal. She's going to uh, tax and spend. Uh, and she's going to let criminals out. And you just can't trust her. And that is, those are the two messages that both sides are putting all their money behind right now. That is the argument of this campaign. Um, all right, let's listen just for a moment to uh, what's happening over on the Senate side of this race. Um, first of all, let's listen to an ad that the Walker campaign is running uh, that attacks uh, Raphael Warnock. Let's listen. It's bad enough Raphael Warnock helped Biden raise taxes on Georgia families. Worse, Warnock allowed our tax dollars to go to COVID relief checks for the Boston Marathon bomber and hundreds of thousands of other convicted murderers and criminals in prison. The Warnock spend almost a billion dollars in COVID checks going to jailed, hardened criminals. Raphael Warnock. Higher taxes, criminal spending. Wow, tough ad, Greg. A couple little fact check here is in order. Uh, the COVID relief money started with Donald Trump. And because of the language that was in the bill that Trump signed into law, it is true that relief checks could be sent to people who are incarcerated. In the Biden uh, uh, bill, that was extended. The fact of the matter is, according to all the fact checkers, that almost no money has gone to people who are incarcerated because the IRS has uh, shut that down. We should also point out that there are any number of Republicans who voted for the COVID relief bill that presumably could send money to people who are incarcerated. So the ad fails at a lot of fact checking, but it's pretty hard hitting. It's pretty hard hitting. And Bill, this also says something else to me, which is a few months ago, I thought all the ads around this time would focus on inflation, 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 and gas prices, gas prices, gas prices. But Republicans still see an avenue to attack Democrats on public safety. It continues to be um, really effective in their, in their research and in their internal data. And I expect Governor Kemp and Senator Warnock to continue hammering um, their Democratic opponents on the issue of public safety and crime. My, I think that's really important, that Republicans and Democrats see public safety entirely different. Democrats say it's about too many guns on the streets, and Republicans say we got to fight the crime uh, that uh, we're seeing proliferate all over the country. And a number of Democrats have also had to just really be on defense with this issue and, and come out kind of early saying that they support law enforcement and that 
you know, their voting record has has portrayed that and that they are certainly not in favor of defunding the police. One candidate who really comes to mind is Sanford Bishop, actually, who's blocked in a pretty tight race in the second congressional district, just came out with an ad, I believe, yesterday or earlier this week, walking alongside members of law enforcement, sort of trying to preemptively counter this message that as a Democrat, that automatically makes him soft on crime. And I think for Democrats in Georgia, Democrats in the South in particular, it's a pretty salient argument because you hear all the time talking with voters or even following candidates. When they go into these more rural counties, the first thing that you hear often is all of that crime in Atlanta, the lack of, of control over Atlanta. And we know what that message sounds like, right? Like crime in big cities and Democratic-led cities. Um, as part of a larger problem with the party. And I think that's why you see now candidates, not also, or Democratic candidates, also kind of crafting that message uh, for themselves in many ways. Rick, the Warnock campaign uh, has now uh, uh, stood behind and has Raphael Warnock in, uh, on camera in the opening of this ad uh, saying, I support, I endorse this commercial. And it's, uh, it's a version of the ad that talks about her, that has Herschel Walker's ex-wife uh, describing in very dramatic terms how he once held a gun to her head and threatened to blow her brains out. We've played versions of that before. I don't want to play it again. But the fact that the Walker campaign itself is now doing this ad, not a pack, is interesting, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, I'm not sure why they decided to do that, other than they perhaps just wanted to control the messaging and they felt like they've got the money to uh, uh, continue to promote it. Um, but boy, uh, I would argue that it's probably kind of risky to put your name on that. Um, I thought they were going to stick with the strategy of, of hiding behind allies. But you know, the interesting thing about both the races now, the Senate race and the governor's race, except for this domestic violence argument, you could take the names out of all those ads and substitute them, and the arguments are the same. Basically, the same arguments in the U.S. Senate race are now being used in the governor's race and vice versa. And it is abortion, abortion, abortion versus tax and spend and a, and a soft on crime. Uh, Greg, we're running out of time, but I think it's important to say that the fact that Raphael Warnock is doubling down now on this very, very dramatic and tough ad is an example of the fact that they do see this race as really a dead heat. It's close. Um, if you gave aides to Senator Warnock and, and Herschel Walker a truth serum, they probably would say it's going to run off right now, at least. And yeah, this is an indication that they don't want to leave anything on the table. Again, even in September, you know, this might be an ad we would expect to see in October, but it's mid-September we're seeing this ad. And it is a very powerful ad because it's 30 seconds, about 27 seconds of it is Sydney Grossman, Herschel Walker's ex-wife, speaking in graphic detail about what happened to her. Yeah, gone are the uh, fuzzy, uh, warm spots about uh, uh, Raphael Warnock uh, being a kid who grew up poor in Savannah and loves puppies. I don't think we're going to see much of that in the closing weeks of the race. We're out of time for today's Political Rewind. Maya King of the New York Times, Greg Bluestein of the AJC, Rick Dent. I'm really grateful to all of you for being part of this show today. Terrific conversation. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. As I mentioned, Lauren Growargo, the campaign manager for Stacey Abrams, will uh, be on with us. Uh, the first of two shows we'll do it with people associated with the campaigns of the camp of gov- for the governor's 
uh, race. That's it for today. Back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.